We're still in Mark chapter 8. Next week we won't be. Uh, next week uh, we'll be doing a sermon for Pentecost out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, so and then we'll get back to Mark chapter 8. We're reading, uh, or I'm reading 22 through 26 this morning. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, uh, that this morning the Spirit would work such that we see Jesus more clearly, that we see our need for him more clearly, and that seeing him, we see his sufficiency for that need. And so, make us see Jesus. Help me to help them see Jesus this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, this is almost feels almost like a serial you know, those old radio serials. Uh, we left Jesus and his disciples in the boat, and there had been a hard discussion between Jesus and the disciples uh, over what they thought was bread, and Jesus reminded them that this discussion is not about bread. And he asked them this question, don't you have ears to hear? Don't you have eyes to see? And so he was really exposing uh, that there was a degree of spiritual blindness within the disciples uh, that Jesus was going to address. And yet he doesn't quite get to that solution yet. Well, we start to get to that now. One of my great uh, favorite hymn writers is John Newton, and I think he gets uh, this in terms of when he writes about uh, the grace that causes us to love and to sing and to wonder with these seemingly strange lyrics at points. Uh, Pitted us when enemies, that's, that's Romans 5 right there, called us by his grace and taught us. But it's not just that he taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood. And so there's that, fr- that strange phrase uh, that sometimes puzzles me, but shouldn't at all. Gave us ears and gave us eyes. It just, hear- it just sounds strange to hear it, I guess. And that's really what this is about. The Jesus who gives us ears and gives us eyes. So as we think about this spiritual blindness that was experienced by the disciples and that we have to admit that we sometimes experience as well, is there any cure for such spiritual blindness? And I want us to turn here in terms of verses 22, 23, and then verse 26. And they get out of the boat 
That's where all of this takes place. Uh, they've, they've, they've left Dalmuthia, and they've ended up in Bethsaida, which is on the kind of the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And, <clears throat> and instead of the Pharisees coming and meeting Jesus, this time it's a group of people that are bringing a blind man to him. And when we think of all the things that Mark could say, uh, it is important that he says this. He's connecting it with what just came uh, already, and he's also going to connect it to what is about to occur. So uh, this is not an accidental encounter. It's within the providence of God, obviously, uh, but Mark's placement of it here, Mark's recounting of it here, is significant because of what has just occurred and what is just about to occur. Now, uh, these people... Um, seem to be the ones that are focused on Jesus healing this man. Uh, because it's, they're the ones who are begging Jesus. It's not the blind man who is begging Jesus, unless he's included in this group. He seems rather to be fairly silent. This text is all about seeing. It just predominates what's going on within this, this uh, passage. We see that Mark uses two different words for eyes. He uses five different verbs for seeing, different nuances of these things. And when it comes to the restoration of a sight, he piles up on two different words for this. And so... All of these different words, he's, he's using all of his vocabulary to try and communicate uh, to the people about this, and he's using rich vocabulary to get this across, and this is about sight. His physical blindness here, I believe, is intended to be a metaphor for spiritual blindness. Now, I want to be very clear about this. I'm not saying this is an allegory. I'm saying this is a real man who's really blind, but it points beyond this real man and his real blindness to spiritual blindness as well. Okay? So uh, don't think that this is simply a story meant to make you think of something else. Jesus really is interacting with this man who is blind. He takes the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And now that seems sort of strange to us, I think, initially, until we perhaps stop and think about it. Um, why wouldn't Jesus just heal him right there? Is perhaps what some of you might think. And it's part of what I would think. But I think even in this, there is an exercise of compassion. Because Jesus is guiding him, Okay, he's taking him by the hand. He's physically leading him. Okay, he's not leaving him to his own devices, but he is bringing him out of what could be an incredibly overwhelming situation. Uh, if this is the, the midst of the village and you have all the hustle, all the bustle, and you have a man who's blind who, who is probably dealing with sensory overload at that moment, and that while he cannot yet see, he can hear everything. And there's just so much going on. And so Jesus brings him out of the hustle and bustle into a quieter place to address him, just as he did with the man who was deaf. And so we see 
a similarity, and there's going to be a number of similarities that take place here as well, but this is similar. He's bringing him to a quieter place so that this man can hear him, and this man cannot be overwhelmed, and perhaps not as fearful and anxious about what is going to happen. And so we see Jesus exercising compassion upon this man. Jesus is not chastising this man for being blind, similar to how he dealt with the disciples in the boat. But he does address the man's lack of sight. Once again, Jesus in this particular miracle is about to use means. He's not just speaking and it's happening, okay? Once again, we see Jesus using his hands and also, like with the deaf man, using spittle. Strange. These are the only two miracles that we see this happening, and yet Jesus spits into his hand and places it on the man's eyes, and we're not sure why. And why is not all that important, because I don't expect any of you to have a healing ministry where you're spitting and putting it on people's eyes, right? But it's not because something had gotten into his eyes and Jesus, like a mom, you know, we've all had those moms, right? Some of you are those moms. The little bit of spit, you know, clear, you know. <laughs> that's not what's going on, okay? Jesus is not clearing out some eye, some eye crusties or anything like that. We're not sure exactly what it is. But the main point that I want us to get into our minds and get into our hearts is that Jesus is exercising his messianic role. And part of that is to open the eyes of the blind that we see repeatedly in the the, um, prophecies of Isaiah. Um, For instance, in 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, Uh, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And that really ought to sound familiar to you, because this is one of the passages I referred to when we looked at the man who was deaf and unable to speak. I remind you again of what, of what God said to Moses when Moses was trying to get out of being the the mediator, the redeemer of Israel. And, uh, then the Lord, by saying, you know, I don't speak very well. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so we're intended to understand a couple of things from this account. And we're intended to to know that one, Jesus is God. That he's not just a, a messenger of God, but he is God himself. But we're also uh, to recognize that he is God in the flesh who has come to be the mediator of God's people, who has come to redeem them, who has come to serve as the, the ultimate anointed one for their salvation. He is the Messiah. We see again his pity and his power on display, utilized to perform a miracle in order to relieve the misery of another person. 
Earlier in this gospel, uh, during one of the times in the boat, uh, when Jesus has stilled the storm, the disciples asked that question, who is this? And we've been getting the repeated steady answer about who is this? He is the Messiah, and he is the compassionate Savior or shepherd of his people. And this is another instance of that. And so uh, when the man is able to see and see clearly, Jesus sends the man home. He tells him not to go into the village. Now, I don't think he's being absolute like, never go into the village. But right now, go home. And I liken it to this. There's, There's two aspects to this. And one has to do with the man, and the other has to do with Jesus. And with respect to the man, uh, Jesus is basically, again, exercising compassion and wisdom for him. Meaning, now that he can see again, to go into the village would perhaps be, again, overwhelming to him. Uh, Some of you know my fondness for Val Kilmer movies. Now, I will confess, there hasn't been a good Val Kilmer movie in a long, 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 long time. Uh, but one of the times when he was, uh, one of the movies from when he was at his peak is one with uh, Mira Sovino called At First Sight. And it's the story of a man who is blind, who through surgery is able to see again, and how overwhelming it was for him to see. None of us have that experience. That's outside of our realm. Uh, but imagine that for a moment. To, to never be able to do something, or to not have been able to do it for a long time, to be deprived of a sense, and then suddenly to have it restored. This is traumatic. And so Jesus sends him home. His, his first temptation might be to look and see everything he could possibly see, because he's not sure how long he's going to see. But Jesus sends him home. But it's also about Jesus. And the idea that, that Mark continues to build about this idea of the messianic secret, uh, that Jesus continually suppresses the desire of people to talk about him and to build his reputation up bigger precisely because As we saw in the earlier chapters, his mission was not simply to heal people. His mission was as a herald to the truth. He was to proclaim the gospel. And so when he's surrounded by people who incessantly want to be healed, it's harder for him to teach. And so he's, in a sense, establishing a boundary so that he can continue his teaching ministry by sending this man home instead of into the village where everyone's going to go, you can see, no one's leading you around. What happened? Who did this? And then flock to Jesus. Do you understand? So, Jesus possesses the power to heal physical blindness is the answer to our first question. But is Mark simply focused on physical blindness, or is there something more in sight or in view? Uh, To this, we'll look at verses 23 and 25. Uh, This healing really does, as I mentioned already, sit between Jesus' comments about spiritual blindness in the boat and what we're going to talk about in two weeks, which is Peter's amazing confession. 
because the light has gone on in Peter. The Jesus who can restore this man's sight can also give us eyes to see spiritual truth. Uh, This Jesus who enables this man to see other people and buildings and trees can give us eyes to understand the scriptures and to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to understand that in the midst of this, Jesus is not simply performing a miracle, but Jesus is also engaging in spiritual warfare. I say this because of the reality that spiritually, the the God of this world, Satan, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so uh, one aspect of spiritual blindness is the activity of the evil one who keeps people from seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so oh, that idea of spiritual warfare comes in is when Jesus shines his light into their hearts so that they can see the glory of God in him, believe the gospel, and be set free from guilt and condemnation. Jesus is not simply doing a physical miracle, but Jesus also performs spiritual miracles. But we come to an issue here with this particular miracle. We see that this man's healing was not instantaneous. It's unique in that respect. At least it's unique amongst the miracles that are recorded in the scriptures. This is not to imply somehow uh, that There was a lack of power on Jesus' part, or there's a lack of wisdom on Jesus' part. It's not to imply any of these things. But we see that Jesus asks this man, after he spits and and places his hands on the man's eyes, open your eyes, tell me what you see. And he says, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. And so his sight is partially restored. But we recognize in the midst of this that he wasn't always blind. He's not like the man in John 9, the man born blind. Because he knows what a tree looks like. He knows, you know, what it sort of looks like for people to walk. No, he's not seeing Ents, for those of you who like the Lord of the Rings. Um, but he doesn't see clearly yet. One of the pieces of music that I listened to years ago, I, it was one of these albums like, that was lost when I got robbed, and I, I never replaced it, a guy by the name of Jeff Johnson. And the, the piece was Monet's Failing Eyes. It was the name of the song. And it taught me something about Monet that I didn't understand. And as an Impressionist, um, His paintings in his youth were vivid and beautiful. After his second wife died, he began to experience the symptoms of cataracts. And so uh, I think we've got a, this is a a piece after, I should have shown a before and after, I guess. 
I ruined it, didn't I? Uh, but this is after he, was, he started to experience the symptoms. And this is lilies in the pond, but you begin to see how it's, it's now lacking its vibrancy, its clarity. Uh, it, it's more confused. Uh, because he's now not able to see the landscapes as he used to see them, and he's doing the best he can. That's this guy. He has Monet eyes. They're, they're not quite right yet. And Jesus wasn't satisfied with this, for we see that he laid his hands on him again. And so what we find is that this is the only progressive healing that we find in Scripture. Why is that here? I mean, if Mark's whole purpose is to have these people in Rome believe in Jesus as the Messiah, why is he including a miracle that, you know, well, Jesus had to do it two times? I think it's to convey something to his audience, not about physical healing, but again about spiritual insight, the re- re- removal of spiritual blindness. And it's this, that our spiritual blindness at times is not removed all at once. That sometimes it happens in stages. As I think of my own conversion way back in the 1980s, and it's hard for me to believe that it's been that long, um, I see a progression that takes place. I mean, uh, you know, I'm basically a evolutionist who kind of is very agnostic about the about whether or not there is a god and who basically is forming my own moral statements and values and the first thing that happened is i became a creationist i i came to the conclusion that evolution um, I'm talking now i'm talking macro evolution not micro evolution for our scientists who are in the audience okay Evolution between species, not within a species, right? That that made no sense. And that I believe now that at that point that there was a God and he created things. He created everything. But that's not enough to save me. Just the, okay, I'm a theist, Being a theist doesn't save anybody. And so it was a few weeks later that I became a Christian, that the God that created everything, Jesus is his son, and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There was a progression in how the scales were removed from my eyes. Now, let's not confuse that with regeneration. Regeneration is instantaneous, but the manifestation of that regeneration may take place in stages as we come to greater understanding of of reality. John Piper, speaking in a slightly different context, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, we begin to see that Jesus is real, reliable, and desirable as presented 
and the gospel. And so I just, I just took, I, I, I took Piper and I took the Westminster standards and I went, <laughs> stuck them together for you. Um, because you begin to understand more fully the Jesus that's presented in the gospel, but that Jesus also becomes desirable to you. You want to have him. You want to trust him. You want, you want the spiritual blessings that he offers. And so that's a, that is a, um, a result of regeneration. Okay? We also, conversely, or the other side of the same coin, we begin to uh, see um, just how great our need is. There's a progressive understanding uh, that, uh, of how messed up we are and how much we need him. Okay? Um, we begin to see our guilt in greater measure, but we also begin to see God's mercy displayed in the cross of Christ, so we end up repenting. And so, again, to summarize this aspect of it, regeneration is an act, it is instantaneous, but the effects of regeneration aren't instantaneous. Think of it this way. When you were conceived, you were a cell. Fully human. Full DNA. But you didn't have arms, you didn't have legs, you didn't have a head, you didn't have a heart, you didn't have a brain yet. But that was coming. It was inescapable by the fact that 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 egg has been fertilized. It has begun this process that is going to result in a fully formed human being. And just as regeneration takes place, it is just as certain that a fully formed Christian will inevitably take place or be the result. Paul speaks about this in Philippians 1 where he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Regeneration resulted in faith, and Paul is convinced that that faith is going to continue uh, until the day of Christ Jesus, but it's going to continue not because it's so strong in them, but because Christ is going to do this. God is going to sustain. God is going to bring it to completion, not us. And so what Jesus begins in regeneration does come to completion just as surely as this man was healed. So, there's, there's two groups of you, essentially, in this room. Some of you still don't get it. Some of you have probably been listening and heard me going, blah, 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 blah. You don't get it. Because spiritually, you don't have eyes to see, you don't have ears to hear. And so what I would say to you, and I think you can understand this, is cry out. For ears to hear and eyes to see. We see this. Paul Tripp in his devotional this week has uh, said this, and it it applies more to sanctification, but I think it's a, a true principle nonetheless that applies here. Change is not found in defending our righteousness, but in admitting our weakness and crying for help. And that's really the the first cry for salvation is, I need help. Instead of, I'll just try harder next time. And so if you don't get it, cry out for help. 
Say, Jesus, I don't understand any of this stuff this guy's talking about. Help me to understand it. But perhaps you already understand it. You already trust and you already worship Jesus. Oh, what does this, in a sense, say to you in, the, in, in this moment? And, and that really is praise him for grace, but keep going to him to understand more. Okay, Psalm 119, which we read from earlier this morning. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Okay, that is a man who's already been converted and yet still wants to understand more of the scriptures. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, we talk about this in terms of illumination of the scriptures, that we're dependent upon this Holy Spirit to help us understand what the scriptures teach. And so illumination is not just for, you know, non-Christians who don't get anything. It's for us Christians because we don't understand everything yet. So we continue to cry out. Same thing from our passage in Ephesians 1 this morning. Paul is praying for Christians and yet prays that God would open the eyes of their hearts so they would have spiritual understanding. The person who does worship and believe is not content with what he worships and believes, but he wants more understanding. And he continues to cry out. And so Jesus restores sight to the spiritually blind. Now, as disciples, how should we respond to this? And, I, and I, I'm going to take this out of verse 22. As followers of Jesus, we were people who were spiritually blind and deaf, and now we were not. But we still know people who are spiritually blind and deaf. I want us to recall the friends of this blind man who bring him to Jesus and begged him to touch him. We see the earnestness of these people on behalf of the blind man. They're begging, they're imploring. Uh, They're not cavalier about any of this. So uh, what I believe we should recognize is that we ought to be earnest in praying for the salvation of those we know who do not have eyes to see, that Jesus would give them eyes to see so that they would believe. I'm reminded of Monica. i got to remember where I am so I don't go off into the blue nowhere over there Um, so they they don't see me. Sorry. I'm a stream of consciousness person. It's a problem I have. Monica was the mother of Augustine. And they've sainted her in certain realms. We don't talk about it that way. She's a saint because she was blood-bought by Jesus. She was set apart by Jesus. But she was known for the prayers for her son's salvation accompanied with tears that she prayed long and hard for years for the salvation of her wayward son, Augustine, who ended up being one of the leading theologians in the church, period. The prayers of his mother were effective and efficient, even though it took time. 
prayers on the behalf of others for their salvation are necessary, but we see that they are insufficient means in and of themselves. Because we also recognize that faith comes not simply by praying, but also by hearing. And hearing by the word of God, as it says in Romans 10. And so we pray for those who don't have spiritual uh, eyes and ears, but we also preach or herald the news of the kingdom to them, which in and of itself is necessary, but also insufficient unless God imparts the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Both of these, in other words, are necessary things. The praying and the preaching, or the praying and the proclaiming, however way you want to put it. Preaching sounds threatening to people, um, and actually a lot of people think are afraid of being preached to. So, But proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They're, praying and proclaiming are meant to go hand in hand together for the salvation of others. So we recognize that Jesus must give them ears to hear as well as eyes to see that they need both in order to believe. Now, we see that Jesus does provide both according to his good pleasure. And there are certain cases in which we ought to have a lot of confidence that they will take place. So I want to think for a moment about a promise that's made in Deuteronomy 30. And that promise, while given uh, specifically concerning the exiled generation, is not limited to that generation because it is part of this covenant process. But in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, that you might live. And so the the idea of the circumcision of the heart is what physical circumcision represented. It was a sign of the circumcision of the heart. It was a sign of the regeneration that takes place. But note here, God is going to circumcise the hearts. This is something that God does. And what's the result that you see from a circumcised heart? Because you can't see whether it's circumcised in and of itself. But you see what? Loving the Lord their God with all of their heart and with all of their soul. The the tangible fruit of spiritual regeneration, the tangible fruit of, of heart circumcision is the love of Christ. A consuming desire for Christ. And if we think of this promise from Deuteronomy 30, we see from 2 Corinthians 1, where Paul makes this outlandish statement, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning Jesus. And that is why through him that we utter our amen to the glory, to God for his glory. And so the, the promise of regeneration finds its fulfillment in Christ. He is the one who's going to grant this circumcision of the heart. He's the one who's going to give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that loves. He's going to do this. Why am I saying this? I don't want people to live in a worst-case scenario life. 
Um, there's certain things about life that I can be pessimistic about. And part of that is growing up in New England. You know, I spent my whole life saying, the Red Sox will find a way to lose. That was my life. Okay? Things have changed. I'm excited. It's not just from cheating. Okay. But sometimes we think that the present is the way things are always going to be. Or that the worst possible thing that will hap- could happen is what will happen. What I want you to live is not a life of the worst case scenario, but I want you to live with hope that is due to the promises of God. Now, these are not guarantees. This doesn't mean that every single child of a Christian is going to come to faith because some of them don't. But sometimes we get stuck in the in-between times and we don't really recognize that. What do I mean? I got great news this week. It was awesome news. I've talked before about my friend. Uh, we go back to seminary and, and, you know, I held his oldest child when she was a brand new baby on a Christmas, Christmas vacation and I vacationed with them up in the mountains of Georgia and all this stuff. This is a good friend of mine. And a few years ago, on just before Easter, his daughter informed him that, well, he knew that her, her birthday, her 18th birthday, was on Easter Sunday. But she said, I'm done with school. I'm done with Jesus. And I'm done with you. And so her, her intention, which she did, acted upon, was to move out, move to another state, to live with a man who was older than her, that she had met online, and who was, had a criminal record. This is exactly what every parent wants to hear. My friend and his wife were devastated. And yet, they and many others kept praying. Kept praying. There was minimal contact. Whenever she needed something she'd maybe forgotten at the house, she might, you know, drive to where they lived and kind of come in for a very brief time to grab what she needed and and go. And it seemed hopeless. It seemed like the worst-case scenario. And then this week, he got a phone call. She kicked out the man. She's going back to church. It's not a PCA church. That's okay. And she wants to come home, not to stay, but to say, well, I'm sorry. She's bearing fruit of repentance, which even two months ago would have seemed unbelievable to him and to many of us. And so... Just because in your brain you go to the worst-case scenario doesn't mean the worst-case scenario is going to be what happens because that's excluding the fact that God's at work. And God tends to work in ways that we don't always see and perceive until they come to a blossom. That doesn't mean that you don't hurt in the process. But what it does mean is your hurt might not last forever. 
And so I want to encourage you, if when you, if, when you find yourself in those situations, uh, I'm the only Christian in my extended family. I'm it, that I know of. And with my mom's death, I, you know, if we actually get to have a, a memorial service when I go on vacation, uh, pray that they have ears to hear and eyes to see because my dad wants me to give the eulogy. And so I'm going to preach the gospel. And I don't know what's going to take place. My worst case scenario, New England mind says, it's not going to result in anything. But there's always the Jesus factor. And he might want to do great things. So, um, continue to pray for those people. Continue to proclaim the news to them as you have opportunity until God works in a way that you see. And so, and to what, what should disciples do? They should pray for God, for God, um, to God, for eyes, for unbelievers that we love. So here we see that Jesus does not simply make salvation possible, but that Jesus actually saves sinners. <laughs> because uh, not only is, does Jesus live an obedient life, die upon the cross to bear the sins of others, and rise again the third day, Jesus also gives the spiritually deaf and the spiritually blind ears to hear, eyes to see, so that they can behold the gospel so that they believe. That they believe that he lived, that he died, and he rose again to rescue them from the wrath of God. To believe that he is the Savior from beginning to end. And so let's rejoice in the one who has given us eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the grace that you have given those who see, who hear and understand and have believed that that is a gift from you. So may we be humbled by that because it's a gift none of us deserved. May we rejoice in that because it's an amazing gift. But also help us to be diligent in praying and proclaiming to others so that they too may believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.